I'd like to start off this Easter message uh, by turning to one of the most weird and bizarre stories in the entire Bible. It occurs within the first dozen or so pages, and it occurs very early in the history of human development. Um, it's a story of man's attempt to ascend to the clouds. It's the story of humanity's drive to climb to the highest of heavens and ultimately invert the relationship between God and man. The story begins in Genesis chapter 11. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. So far, sounds like a beginning to a normal Easter message. Let's keep going. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Now, as you can see, this story is weird and bizarre, and part of it is because it's so distinct from the modern person's everyday experience. Like, you don't wake up on a normal day and kind of like, you know, I really want to accomplish something today. I'm going to build a tower that goes all the way to the sky, all the way into the highest of heavens. Like, we just don't do that type of stuff. So at this point, there's some historical information that is needed to make sure we are approaching this story with the proper lens. So first, we know from the previous verse where we are located in time and geographically. We are in ancient Mesopotamia. Now, it's fascinating that is that in ancient Mesopotamia, these towers, these structures to the sky were actually quite common. We have evidence of dozens of these just in this region, but we also know that many ancient cultures built similar-like structures. They were built among the ancient Sumerians, Elamites, Akkadians, and Babylonians. Now, one of the things that the one of the things that this author assumes you know is that whatever this tower-like structure to the sky is, is that it's a part of a religious structure. So these types of structures, there was pretty much only two of them built in this region at this time, and they would either be palaces or temples. And both of those were associated with the religious structure of the people. So whatever this thing is, it is a tower that is trying to ascend to the heavens with some type of religious structure as its backing. Now, historically, these tower-like structures are called ziggurats. And some of you might be familiar with that term, but probably most of us aren't. We don't use the word ziggurat in everyday language for the most part. But even if you don't know the word ziggurat, you might be familiar with what this story is normally known as. Not the story of a ziggurat, but the story of the Tower of Babel. Now, why does this ancient people want to build a giant ziggurat, this tower-like structure that's ascending into the heavens? What's the motivation behind that? Well, there, there, there's a conceptual framework of the ancient person that you have to understand. See, people at this time and in this region believe that the gods or goddesses or whatever deities they would worship, that they dwelt on top of sacred mountains in sacred space. And so there's, a, there's an idea behind this. If the gods live up there on sacred mountains and in sacred space, then we can build artificial mountains that recreate that sacred space on top of a sacred mountain. And the reason for doing that in the air is that, it, towards the sky, is that you want to come to the place where heaven and earth meet, because that's the place the deity or the god can meet with the human. So the top of the ziggurat is the place where heaven and earth are thought to meet, where then you can have access to the gods. This is further 
articulated by the fact that there was a ziggurat that the ancient Babylonians built, and it was called Edamanaki. And that literally translates to the foundation of the place of heaven and earth. So it's this sacred meeting space between heaven and earth. Now, when we read this story, we have a problem because we get the direction wrong. We think that humanity is trying to get up to like go, like, I want to go kick it. The God's probably got a good life. They live in some paradise. I want to climb real high and then I'll hang out and live up there. And so we think the point of this story is that man can ascend. But it's more than that. Humanity goes up to bring God down. We get, a clue, we get a clue into the motivation behind this in what we just read. If you remember, it said the motivation. The humans want to make a name for themselves. They want to make a great name for themselves. And so ultimately, they are not trying to climb to the heavens to, to worship gods or goddesses. They're not even there to, to make the name of whoever they worship good or great. What they are trying to do is bring the God down to their level so that that God would do their will. That's the whole point of the religious structure. You build a temple and you put an idol inside of it, and then what do you do? You make some sacrifices and perform some rituals so that hopefully this deity does some some of your bidding. This is a project of self-exaltation. It's a project that says, I don't want to do the will of the one who above. I want to do my own will. It's an attempt to conform the image of God into the likeness of man rather than have man be conformed to the image of God. It's a way to say, I want to sit on the throne. I want to have control. This is a project of self-exaltation for the human. They want to make their name great. And it's rooted in this evil type of motivation. And so, some of the very first humans build towers to ascend to the sky to make their name great. They build artificial mountains in order to exalt themselves. That's a weird story, right? It's very weird. It's a good thing. This story is really, really old and weird and is in no way relevant to us today. Like, none of us are guilty of building towers to make our name great. Nobody here builds and constructs artificial mountains to exalt themselves. There's something about this story you have to understand. And it happens in many stories. Not all stories, but in many stories. There are some stories that are so true, it's not only that they happen to have happened, But that story happened and continues to happen. It plays out again and again and again. You follow this. There's some stories that are so true, it's not just that they happen to have happened at some point in the historical past. That story and its structure plays again and again and again and again. It happened and it's always happening. Let me give you an example of what I mean. So, in the Bible, there's a guy named King David. King David, good dude. Many of you probably know this guy. The story of David and Goliath. He wants to serve the Lord. He wants to make great of the Lord's name. He's a man after God's own heart. And David is blessed by God and experiences much success. He grows in success and fame and fortune. And he's a blessed man. Now, after success, after success, after success, he begins to sit and saturate in that success. 
And soon enough, he takes his eye off the ball. And as he takes his eye off the ball, he takes his eye off the Lord, sin and corruption begin to seep in. And it's in no time that this great good king turns from being a great good king to someone who commits grave sin. And some of you might be familiar with the story, but the story of David and Bathsheba. David takes Bathsheba and commits horrendous grave sin that then leads to more horrendous grave sin and ultimately to murder. So you follow this. There's a story of a guy named King David who had blessings and was blessed by God and loved God, but he sits in his success, takes his eye off the ball, takes his eye off the Lord, and sin creeps in, and it's his downfall. So that's one story that has historically happened, but that story happens again and again. And how long do you have to wait for that story to happen again? Are you familiar with his son named Solomon? Solomon, good king, wise king, loved the Lord. And what happens? In wealth and fame and fortune, he takes his eye off the ball, and it becomes his downfall. Now, did it just happen to David and Solomon? No, because if you're familiar with Solomon's son, a little lesser-known son named Rehoboam, it happens with him. Oh, and by the way, some Bible trivia, uh, who did David get the throne from? A guy named Saul. And what happened to Saul? Saul. Good guy, started off great, loved by the people, had the blessings of the Lord. Sin keeps in, corruption, and then the downfall. And you could see that same type of story play out to this day, right? It's not that it just historically happened, it did. But the structure and lessons and principles play out again and again and again. Which brings us back to the story of the ziggurat, the towers that ascend to the heavens. We are tempted to look down upon these ancient people who are so, like, they're so dumb. They believed gods lived on top of mountains, and then they built these, these tower-like structures to, you know, bring God down to them, and, and ultimately they're building all this stuff to make their name great. How dumb. It's like, it's like, oh, don't you know this story happened? And it continues to happen again and again and again. We build artificial mountains in projects of self-exaltation. I mean, you you don't even have to, you don't have to go far. Like, think in the modern world how close we are to Silicon Valley. If you start reading on what some of the brilliant minds in Silicon Valley are thinking about transcendence and humanity transcending their own humanity and look at the root motivations behind that, we're in Tower of Babel projects all over again. And it's easy to look out there, but you also have to look inside. Like, do you live in such a way where you want to exalt your own name, where you sit on the throne of your own kingdom, where you center reality around you, where everything has some selfish motive behind it? And there's a temptation here to go, that's good, I'm sure there's some selfish people in this room. They need to hear this. They need to hear, you know. I'm, I'm glad my relative came to the Easter invite, man. That's the whole reason you tell them, you know? And it's like, okay, wait a second. You don't think that you're selfish and you center reality around yourself and you're not a part of a self-exaltation project. Because, you know, many people just want to say, ah, no, I'm, 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 I'm legit, man. That's someone else. Okay, there are a number of tests that can demonstrate how your thinking is faulty. But I'll give you just one, one test, because it's Easter. We're just going to do one. Okay. Question, who have you harmed the most in your life? 
Who have you hurt most in life? Who have you harmed the most with your words or with your actions? I mean, really think about this. Who have you hurt most in life with your words or actions or inaction? And I can tell you from asking people these questions and, and pastoring people, you know what the answer is? Who, who, who is it that you've most harmed? It's the people you claim to most love. Think about this for a moment. The people you have most harmed with your words are typically the people you claim to most love. And then, you, you know, you, you reflect on it and you go, how, like, what a pitiful people we are. I mean, you have said stuff to people whom you claim to love that you wouldn't even dare say to a stranger because that would be rude. But yet you do it to the people you claim to love most. And so you see, at the end of the day, we're all kind of vying to sit on our own throne and have kind of reality center on us. And what makes this problem even worse is that this world is a broken, fallen, painful place to live. And so things happen to us and things are done by us to others and we pick up coping mechanisms and trauma and scar and bitter memories and broken relationship and all of that stuff makes this a much more difficult problem. So I'll give you an example. Why would you want to make great of your name? Why would you want to justify yourself? Show the world that you're something special. Who knows, but maybe, maybe your dad left you before you could even remember having a relationship with your dad and you've been set trying to prove yourself to a man you don't even have a relationship with. Maybe your mom was overbearing or too hard on you, nothing was ever good enough, so for the rest of your life, you had to become a perfectionist, and you always got to make sure everything's good, and you're such a people pleaser, but ultimately, at the end of the day, it's not about pleasing them, it's about your own insecurities and trying to feel like you're doing okay because you had an overbearing mother. Maybe you were awkward in elementary school, and you got made fun of, and you remember coming home crying after school sometimes. And then at some point, you went to school and got a decent job. And now you're climbing the ladder of success. And in order to climb that ladder of success, you work extra hours all the time. Unknowingly, you know what you are doing? You are sacrificing your wife and kids on the altar of success because in working those long hours, you're neglecting the thing that you claim to love most. It's religious structure. You are literally sacrificing... <laughs> your family on the altar of success, the ones you claim to love most. And think about like big projects of human achievement, right? Say, take something like the internet. The internet, man. What a great human achievement. Human beings are so awesome. And then you think about what do we primarily use the internet for? Well, besides looking at things we ought not to, we log in and we, we have a host of social media platforms where we post things about ourselves. We project an external kind of avatar of ourselves looking for likes, follows, and retweets. And it makes us good to be liked, followed, and retweeted. Huh. What do we primarily use the internet for? Likes, follows, influence. And the research is clear. The vast majority of us are addicted to this now. We're addicted to people affirming our being and our experiences. You know, that sure sounds like a way of, of making 
a great name for ourselves. See, there are some stories that just happen, and there's some stories that play again and again and again. And at the heart of the project in Babel, in this tower, is self-exaltation, a way to make your name great, not a way to make the Lord's name great or to conform to his will. Now, what happens when uh, humanity is set on building their towers, exalting themselves? There's that story playing out again and again and again in human history. What occurs is a claim that the first Christians made. And the claim that the first Christians made can be summarized in a Bible verse that, you're, that many of you are familiar with. Even if, you, you've probably, even if you've, this is the first time you've ever been to church, you've probably heard this verse because it's so influential. But I want you to feel the weight of it because there's a story that's been taking place in humanity since the beginning of time. But there's another story that also takes place. And the first Christians claimed that while we were all stuck building our towers, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So God sees the tower projects taking place in all of our lives, and he looks down, and what does he do? He loved us so much that he gives his son. He gives his son. Now there's a question. How is God going to give his son? What does that look like? Well, it's the inversion of the story. Because as human beings went up to bring God down, God comes down to bring humanity up. God comes down in the person of Jesus in order that he might bring us up. Now, another question arises is, like, in what sense did God come down? And to what degree did God go down? How far did God go down? If the trajectory is reversed and we're reaching for the highest heavens, how far does Christ go? The answer to this is given in the book of Philippians, chapter 2. Paul the Apostle, leader in the early church movement, speaking of Jesus, says this, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, did you catch the direction? Remember, in Babel there was a directional issue. And now there's, there's another direction taking place. That which is in the highest heavens goes down, down, down. But you have to look at the inner logic for it to actually make sense, because it's not just like, you know, God comes down a little bit. Like, follow this. Speaking of Jesus, who is God, who's on the one true throne, King of kings and Lord of lords, in the highest of heavens, that person comes down and takes upon human flesh. Theologically, that's called the incarnation. God becomes man. He becomes a human. So he leaves the highest of heaven, and he comes down to our home, our domain, our world. But then the Apostle Paul says, no, it's not that. He goes, he goes even further, right? It says he doesn't just come down to be a human. He comes down to be a certain type of human. He becomes a servant. Now, this is really easy just to go, oh, yeah, let, let's, let's, he's a servant. He, good, let's move on. Like, stop and, like, think about this for a second. The highest being in all existence, the highest entity in all of reality, leaves his domain and becomes one of us, and then he becomes a servant, and he washes 
his subjects' feet. This is an upside down, a flipping, an inversion of the way everyone thought the way the world ought to work. The king of glory is washing feet. But then Paul the Apostle says, no, that's not it. You got to understand. He goes even further than that because he leaves the highest heaven to become a human, to become one of us, and then he becomes a servant. And then on top of that, it says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So Christ goes down into the depths of death itself and he experiences the full weight of human depravity because Paul says it's not just as if he went to death and that was the end of it. The way he went into that death matters because it's a descent even further down. Because Paul the Apostle says, yes, he died, even death on a cross. Now, what you need to understand is that word cross was not even supposed to be spoken in polite Roman society. Why? Because crucifixions were the most horrific imaginable deaths that just speaking that word in common talk, in polite society, was off limits because there was likely people who had observed the crucifixion of an individual. And if you, if you saw that, you would never recover from it. It was that brutal to humiliate and beat and torture someone and then nail them immovable to a wooden crossbeam in an attempt to prolong their suffering and agony. Like, it didn't get worse than that. So how far does the king who is in the highest heavens goes down into humanity, down into service, down into death, down into the depths of death and human depravity itself by death on a cross. And what's fascinating about this is this is the uniting of the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. So now the king who is in the highest of highs is now dying on a cross. The high and the low are united. Heaven and earth are united in the person and work of Jesus at the cross. God came down. He flipped the trajectory of humanity's ascent upside down. He came down. And why did he do it? What is the scripture saying? Like, what's the purpose of this descent? Because God loved the world so much. And how does God demonstrate his love for humanity? By going down, down to the farthest depths you can imagine, into death on a cross. One of the most profound things a human being can understand is that God loves them. And I know many of you have been Christians a long time, and even if you're not a Christian, you've grown up in a a culture that is highly influenced by Judeo-Christian culture, and you've heard things like, God loves you. But no, let's just stop for a second. One of the most profound things a human being can believe about themselves is that God actually loves them. It will change your life. It will change how you think about the world. It will change every component and facet of your being to truly and actually believe that God indeed loves you. And how did he demonstrate his love? Why we were enemies and sinners, Christ died for us. And he went down all the way to the cross. And so if ever you doubt the love of God, you look to the cross of Christ where God puts it on full display. Now, Jesus' body is taken off the cross and it's put in a tomb. And this is to the point, like, why we're here on Easter Sunday. 
because it, the story doesn't end with Jesus traveling to the depths, going into death itself through the cross. Like, there's more to the story. See, the first Christians claimed that something incredible happened, that the lifeless body of Jesus was put into a tomb. And all of a sudden, the forces of death began to reverse. Like, the process of entropy was being undone. There is a cold, lifeless body. And then out of nowhere, on the third day, the processes of death begin to reverse. Entropy is undone. On the cellular level, things are beginning to regenerate. And in the stillness and silence and coldness of a dark tomb, at one significant special moment, something occurs. Boom. Dun, dun. A heartbeat. Blood starts to flow again. Life is returning. Things on the cellular level begin to reverse what they were commanded to do. And the first Christians made this claim that they with their own eyes saw this resurrected Jesus. They saw him, they heard him, they touched him. And many of these first Christians wrote down their eyewitness accounts in books and they told stories. And here's, here's the, the, the even crazier thing than claiming that a crucified Jewish guy named Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate and resurrected on the third day. What may be even crazier than that claim is what historically happened. Because these first Christians went around saying, I not only saw Jesus, I want to tell you about his resurrection, his life, and the love of God and his offer of forgiveness. And guess what started happening? Lives started to change, like out of nowhere. These first Christians would go around and say, this is what Jesus did. He's alive, he rose, and this is what he's doing for you. And lives begin to change. And you can, you can see it historically, like... There, Christianity spreads like, like wildfire and all these people are claiming that Jesus has changed their lives. And there was good times and there was bad times. There was times when the first Christians, first Christians were persecuted, they were tortured and killed, but nevertheless, many of them died saying, I saw Jesus rise and he changed me. And here's the truth. There is no other historical figure that even comes close to the name of Jesus when it comes to people claiming an individual changed their lives. History is filled with countless people saying, I don't know how it happened. I'm not even sure why it happened. I don't have it all figured out, but man, he changed me. And this room is filled with people who say, I don't even know why he did it, how it happened. I don't got it all figured out, but he changed me. He changed me and I love him for it. And I know that he loves me and my life has never been the same. I'm not perfect. I got a lot of stuff to do, but I'm telling you, something's different about me. And we could go around in the room and tell stories, man. Story after story. Yeah, this is where I was at. And Christ came out of nowhere. I wasn't even looking for him. I didn't even want him. But he came, he found me, and he changed me. And right now, on this day, as we sing and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, we are joining countless millions across the globe, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who are now united to not make their name great, but to make the name of Jesus great. Millions of people today saying, he's alive, he rose, and he changed me. I love him. 
I love him. I belong to him completely. And so Jesus goes down into death for a reason, and he resurrects. And then the story goes even further because Paul says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of, to the glory of God the Father. So who has the name now? The name above every name. Jesus does. And how did he get the name above every name? Not by building towers to the sky, but by coming down to be a servant and to die and to go to the cross in order that you might know the love of God. One of the most profound things a human being can say is God loves me and I believe it. It will change you for the rest of your life. God loves you. He demonstrated his love for you by going to the cross. But it's, it's not just, it doesn't just end there, it's even better. Because it's not as if God dies on the cross to forgive you of your sins. Christ comes down in order that he might bring humanity up. Ephesians 2, 4 through 9 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that at the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Romans 6, 9 through 11 says, We know that Christ being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he now lives to God. So also, must, so also you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You are now dead to sin and alive with him. He brings you up in his life. And lastly, as God raised the Lord, he will also raise us up by his power. So here's the two parallel stories. Humanity goes up and in selfishness attempts to bring God down. The Christian claim is that God indeed came down and he goes all the way down to death, yes, even death on a cross. But death could not contain him. The processes of death were reversed and he comes out on the other side in power and in resurrection and for 2,000 years has been changing lives one by one. And now he's ascended to the highest of heavens and promises you that one day what has happened to him will occur to you. Just as God raised Jesus the Son up, the Father raises the Son, so will all those in Christ be raised on the last day. Now, this is what this is what the gospel is all about. Gospel means good news. It's good news. So whatever you're hearing, when you hear the gospel, it ought to be good news. And there's some bad news in there. The bad news is, is we've been in the business of self-exaltation. But more than that is good news. And what is the good news? You can stop building your towers. You can stop building your artificial mountains. Your hands, the work of your hands would never be able to justify yourself anyway. You'd never be good enough. You'd never, you'd never, you'd never justify yourself before whomever you're seeking to justify yourself by enough. 
So stop building the towers, put down your tools. There is a God who knows you. He knows your fears, your doubts, your insecurities, your shame, your sin. He knows what you've done to others. He knows what's been done to you. And he knows every hair on your head. And he knows your name. And this God has demonstrated his great love for you by sending his son to die on that Roman cross. And the good news is, is that death could not contain him. He rose on the third day, and his victory can be your victory because God extends his hand to humanity and says, let's get in the business of getting back up in the proper manner. And so today, we celebrate the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, the victory of the Son of God over Satan, sin, and death. It's time to stop building our towers and make the name of Jesus great. And you'd be surprised what joy is found in that life-giving act. Now, we got to transition into something that's awesome. We're going to transition into worship and baptisms, and they're going to take place. Now, the reason why this is so incredible is that one of the things we fail to understand about baptisms is that baptisms are actually a reenactment of the story we just heard. So we go, okay, there's some water, and we go down, and it's like the washing of our sins. Yes, it's that, but it's also more. Because the way the Bible describes baptism is that as you go down into the waters, you are uniting with Christ in his death. You're reenacting the death of Jesus. And then as you come out, it says you are united with him in his resurrection, in his life. It's a reenactment. So as we baptize people, just this motion is a telling of the gospel. It's a reenacting of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You go down with him, dead to sin, and then you come back up, alive to him. And so, couple couple things. We got baptisms going on in second service and third service. So, you might have seen this in your handout. In case you're wondering why didn't we baptize all these people, because we had enough people that we needed to split it up into two services. So that's awesome. Secondly, there's going to be people who are getting baptized lined up right here. Friends and family are going to want to congregate around that. Great, you can do that. But when, you, when your loved one has gone down and come up and they've exited, we'd appreciate if you clear some space for the other family that's wanting to come in and get close to the scene. So you're welcome to do that. What will be awesome is the baptisms and worship will be taking place on our screen. So no matter where you're sitting, you'll be able to see this. And so I'm going to pray as we transition. There is a story of humanity, of us trying to ascend to bring God down. And then there's the story of our good king who came down to bring us up. And every single individual today can decide which story do you want to participate in. Do you want to participate in the story of self-exaltation and human beings building towers? Or do you want to participate in the victory of Jesus? Say, not me, Lord, your will be done. Not my victory, your victory. Thank you that I get to participate in it. So, Father, as we turn now to worship and baptism... We ask that the name of your son Jesus would be exalted in this place, that we would unite not under any individual name, but by the name of Jesus. And may we be reminded right now that people all across the world, people from different tribes, tongues, and languages are united under the banner of Jesus Christ.
bless each individual as they go down into the waters and rising up. May we see each one of these as a picture and reenactment and retelling of your great good gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.